You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next reader at the... Um a more experienced end of the spectrum is a New York Times best-selling author, the author of how many, like 20-some-odd? Very odd, yeah. Novels, very <laughs> odd. Uh, novels, a couple series, a few standalones, one science fiction novel. But both our authors this evening are um, exploring the, the genre of mystery. Um, um, this author has won just about every award, I believe, in mystery, which I, I don't even know that much about. There's the Edgar, the Gregor, the Creasy, the Nero, the McCarty, the Lambda, which is a crossover from other. But um, clearly a, a someone uh, deeply embedded and well-respected and well-read in the mystery genre. And I'd like to, we're very privileged to have it. I'd like to welcome Laurie R. King. Well, I thought that um, since this is a, we're, we're talking about science fiction, I would um, bring out my, my solitary offering to the world of science fiction. I think an awful lot of uh, crime fiction writers start in sci-fi. Um, I know several people, including my good friend Dana Sabino, who started in, um, in mysteries and uh, in, in um, science fiction and, and went on to mysteries. Um, and I did the same thing, in fact. I started, my first attempt at writing was a novel that is set in the not too distant future. Um, it is, you know, that, that delightful, whimsical work, the apocalyptic novel. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I hate to say this since I'm sitting at a, at a podium with two gentlemen, but the, the basic premise of the book is that all the men die. <laughs> really nothing against gents. <laughs> Some of my best friends are male. <laughs> but it, it said it, it in a time, you know, in the not too distant future. So I thought I'd, I'd read a little bit of that, and then if I haven't taken up my full time, I'll, I'll read a section from one of the Russell books, which um, has nothing to do with science fiction, but it's a section that I enjoy reading. So. Um, in, um, in the early part of the 16th century, a gentleman by the name of Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo wrote a book called The Exploits of Esplandian, who was a, a knight. And in this book, um, he, he talks about a um, group of women who inhabit an island um, in some unnamed place. Well, 20 years later or so, when Hernan Cortes sent a group of men out from Mexico City to, uh, to go west, they looked across what is now known as the you know, Sea of Cortes and, uh, and saw what they took to be an island. Um, and they thought, ah, oh, that, that's it. That's the island that's ruled by Califia. And so that is why we are, we are known as California. Um, 
that's the basis of this book is that we are you know we are California's Caliphia's daughters and uh, and I have a uh, at the beginning of each chapter there's a, a snippet of, of the book um, which is my way of showing that I, I really haven't gone over to the dark side I'm really an academic at heart <laughs> so um, but but some of them you know tie in nicely and I, I know that You've often seen these novels that have um, a completely unrelated book, but something in it has a touch on what's going on in the chapter, and that's what I aim for with these. So that, um, on the right-hand side of the Indies, there was an island called California, which was very close to the region of the earthly paradise. There were no males among the women at all, for their way of life was similar to that of the Amazons. These women had energetic bodies and courageous, ardent hearts, and they were very strong. I should have put this in Spanish, and it must be, must be very nice in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> they kept only those few men whom they realized they needed for their race not to die out. <laughs> so you see, there, there is a point to, <laughs> to your presence. <laughs> The book is about a woman named Diane, who um, is is headed to um, to look into some people that would like to move into their area of California, and um, so it's a it, she's on a, a sort of road trip, and as often in road trips you pick up um, various odds and ends along the way, and in this case it was a very small baby, which since she's never had a baby, rather put her off. Um, but she's she's been riding the road up towards um, what is now called San Francisco and is in this book called Meijing because in this alternative universe um, it is the people of the Chinese heritage um, who who take over San Francisco and so it is Meijing. All afternoon the fog had been spilling over the tops of the hills from the sea, soft waves that dissipated before they reached the ground. Now, however, the sun's heat was no longer enough to keep it at bay, and it was tumbling over the top of Meijing's walls like an immensely slow tidal wave. The wave broke over the travelers a mile from the city gates, and the world closed in, clammy and dim. In the half-light, the city walls lost their glow and were only gray and very solid. At the city's gates, streamers of fog blew across the huge archway and gave for a brief instant the impression that the city itself was sailing briskly through a stationary cloud. Diane rode through the gates and dismounted inside the courtyard, which was even more enormous than she remembered, its farthest reaches only a series of glowing lights to the dam. The courtyard functioned as between territory, separated from the interior by the same sheer, high, windowless walls that the city presented to the rest of the world. A person in the court of traders might be technically within Meijing's walls, but she was emphatically not within the city. The courtyard was emptying rapidly in the early dusk. Most of the smaller stalls were already boarded and padlocked. The approvals building here was the great-grandmother of the individual units along the road, an 800-foot line of interconnected cubicles no more than 20 feet deep and studded by dozens of evenly spaced doors alternating with windows. 
Both ends of the building were dark, but towards the middle, quite a few of the cubicles were still fully lit and bustling with desperate energy as the soon-to-be-benighted traders hurried to have their last-minute purchases weighed, tested, and analyzed by the te technicians in their gleaming, mysterious array of equipment. So she's permitted to enter the walled city. Then the walls turned a sudden corner and ceased altogether, and Diane was startled to find a view of inner Beijing rolled out before her. She'd only expected to be given access to the walls, not the inner city itself. But here it was, lit by the last rays of the sun that slid underneath the fog, turning the silver walls to a warm rose color and making the world stop to catch its breath at the serenity and perfection within. All the bustle of the city's business was conducted within the actual structure of the perimeter wall itself. From outside Beijing, the wall seemed only a monolithic barrier, but on the inside there were great variations in depth with balconies and roof gardens and thousands of windows to overlook the great uneven parkland that was the city. The sweep of countryside, meticulously natural and unplanned in its heights and hollows, grassland and lakes, forest groves and tidy orchards and flowering shrubs. When she'd been here with her mother 14 years before, it had still looked raw in places, and new hills formed of rubble recently planted and containing unfinished patches. Now, it seemed, the last of the tarmac and concrete had been hauled off to the walls and the bay. And under the softening, roseate fog, it looked like a young Eden. She then spends a few days in Meijing, and... Um, leaves to take the ferry across uh, to head north. The ferry cost, cast off her its short trip across the gate, and she looked up in silence at the remnant of the great bridge overhead, that magnificent reminder of the abilities of a race gone by, the patchy orange towers balancing what remained of the cables and roadway. And then Diane's eyes narrowed. Do I see people working on it? Yes, you didn't know. Three years ago, the council decided to repair it. We should have it open in another 10 years or so. <laughs> May's pride in her love for the bridge was apparent in her voice and eyes. And look, this will also be new since you were here. She pointed across the cabin to the eastern side. We're making a shrine out of the rock. The island's ugly concrete remnants were gone. In their place lay a wide flat stone platform centered in a green park with a huge shapeless framework of beams and posts woven on top. The workers are nearly ready to start covering the frame, May told her. It'll be a Buddha, a hundred feet tall and covered in gold leaf. We've been collecting jewelry for 20 years, she told Diane happily. Diane pictured the impact of sailing in from the ocean beneath the restored bridge, an immense golden Buddha in front and the austere walls of the city rising on the side. It will be magnificent, she agreed, and felt more of a barbarian than ever. <laughs> um, some, some of you may know of the Mary Russell books. Um, they, they count as, um, as fantasy in the sense that um, Mary Russell is a young woman who meets and becomes the partner and eventually full partner of uh, Sherlock Holmes in the 1920s, teens and 20s. Um, th this, this particular book, The Game, is about six or seven in. Um, the, the tenth one will be out in April. Um, and they, 
they are called to Mycroft's house. I mean, Mycroft is such a great character. I, I you know, I, I've been looking for years to, for a way to actually make use of the character properly, and he, he will play a major role in the next book. I had such fun with Mycroft. Um, but he, he's very useful, um, you know, to, as, as a means of sending um, Russell and Holmes off somewhere. And so they, um, they go to visit him. They are called to go and visit him. And, um, and he presents them with, um, with some documents. Holmes had the third document unfolded using the care he might have given a first century papyrus. He made no attempt to weigh down the edges of this one, merely left the soft crude paper rest where it would, lest it dissolve into a heap of jigsaw squares among the scored fold. I craned my head to see the words. Holmes, however, just glanced at the pages, seeming to lose interest as soon as he had freed them. He sat aside and let me look to my heart's content. This was a birth certificate for a child born in some place called Ferozapur in the year 1875. His father's name clarified the difficulties of the case, something from the other forms, Kimball. I looked up hoping for an explanation only to find both sets of gray Holmes' eyes locked expectantly onto me. How long, I wondered, before I stopped feeling like some slow student facing her disappointed headmistress. <laughs> I'm sorry, I began, and then I paused, my mind catching at last on a faint sense of familiarity. Kimball and O'Hara, and to that a town that could only be in India. No, oh no, the book was only a children's adventure tale. I'm sorry, I repeated, only where it had before connoted apology. This time it was tinged with outrage. This doesn't have anything to do with Kim, does it? The Kipling book? You've read it, my Of course I've read it. Good, and save some explaining. <laughs> I believe this to be his amulet case. He's real then, Kipling's boy? As real as I am, said Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.